Welcome back to All Alone with Something to Say. This is your host, Emma Newberry. And this is going to be the third installment in our series of indeterminate length on the relationship between women and true crime. Today, we're going to be discussing something a little bit more meta, which is the female voice and women in podcasting and in the general audio sphere, I guess. Ironically, this is also the week that Pam and I are taking precautions and quarantining from each other, so please bear with us as our audio may be a little bit compromised this week because we're recording from the safety of our bedrooms. So today we're going to be exploring the audio realm as a site of power and reclamation for women, and also digging a little bit deeper into what our responsibility is as female podcasters and female podcasters who are talking about violence against women and the murder of women and what this sort of double layer of the feminine voice womanhood and the absence of the bodily which is you know something that's so often linked to the feminine what we can achieve in this sort of rarefied space so without further ado here is minisode three which is entitled vox clamantis and yes that is latin and yes i am a nerd enjoy In her journal article, Murder, She Spoke, Amanda Greer, who is a fourth-year PhD student at the Cinema Studies Institute at the University of Toronto, um, wrote a paper basically about the podcast as a realm of reclamation for women, because when they are not having their bodies displayed, they gain a better sense of authority. So she writes... The female voice in cinema has been discussed throughout film sound theory as persistently de-acousmatized, denied the power of narrative creation, and relegated to on-screen visual space. This paper will contrast this visual containment of female vocalizations with that of the female-hosted podcast in which nothing is or can be seen. The podcast offers alternative routes of resistance for the female acousmetra, allowing her to maintain her disembodied status. This is poignantly evident in the popular true crime podcast, My Favorite Murder, in which the acousmatic female hosts counter crime film and television's reliance on images of violated female bodies with purely oral recountings. The true crime podcast is one potential site of doubled resistance against the deacousmatization of female voices and the visualization of mutilated female bodies. This resistance leads to an ethics of the spectral, a Derridian mourning without an end. That is a quote. Yeah, I mean, she has a lot. She's thrown in Derrida. I mean, she's really like having a time with it. But I know that we have talked a lot about embodiment of women as part of true crime media and the idea of the female body as a site of power and redemption and or alternatively for victimhood and dehumanization. When women's voices are deacousmatized following Michel Chion's theory, he's like this famous French film theorist that Greer cites a lot. This means that their voices are pretty much inextricably linked to their body. And in fact, Xion does this super fun and empowering analogy, basically saying that the acousmetra or like the voice without visual origin is kind of like a striptease 
And the voice is akin to a naked woman, which honestly takes away the empowerment aspect for me, but we'll get into that. Greer also writes, quote, the deacusmatization or embodied voice is inherently feminine, sexualized, and in the vein of the striptease, highly visual and spectacular, end quote. And we know how complicated bodies can be for women, but also just for anybody. So today we are talking about the podcast as a genre or as a medium, specifically the true crime podcast, as a way for women to reclaim power over the hypervisual and often exploitative medium of true crime and its relationship to women's bodies. So objective number one is to never, ever again say acousmetra. So we're going to clarify what that means. So Chion, he defines it as a kind of talking and acting shadow in his writing. So we're just going to say that is a disembodied voice versus an embodied voice, which would be, say, if you were watching a video of us. Or the analogy of the Wizard of Oz, when he's a disembodied voice, when you can't see the man behind the curtain, he holds a lot of power and sway. But then when you embody him and like visualize him as he's speaking, he immediately loses all credibility. What we're exploring today is, is the podcast as a medium a place of reclamation for women because we are choosing not to display our bodies, which are often not inherently, but often sexualized. So the second thing that we should also clear out of the way is Jacques Derrida, who's like a famous French philosopher, has this idea of mourning as this continued relationship with the dead that like sort of reanimates them every time you remember them. And so the idea of mourning without end is essentially the idea that when we talk about female victims or women in general, in this medium, it's sort of like resurrecting them and giving them back their agency. That's what Greer is arguing. And we're sort of trying to figure out how we feel about that. I kind of sense that we feel like that's a conclusion that like doesn't quite fit, I think, as neatly as she wants it to. With true crime, it just adds another layer of, you know, empowering or disempowering, amplifying or objectifying women's bodies that just complicates her argument. So like, it's good that she- It's complicated. Addressed it, yeah, right? Although, actually, one thing that she said that I hadn't really thought of was the, like, format of My Favorite Murder is that one host, like, tells the story and the other, like, listens to it. And this, like, even if they, like, know about it, they're hearing the story specifically for the first time. George was talking about um, the freeway phantom, I believe. One of the victims, like, called home and was like, yeah, like, this guy picked me up and we're in Virginia. Okay, bye. And just this very, like strange kind of last Mm -hmm. communication and so like Greer in the article highlights they're both just kind of at a loss for words like with the tragedy of it all and with the confusion of it all yeah and so that really I think does kind of bring it into this plane of like yes we're listening to the story for entertainment but also this 10 year old was killed the interesting tension to me here is I don't think that being humanized and being empowered in the context of Greer's argument are the same thing. She points out that to be disembodied, like to have only your voice is to have power because, quote, it is outside of represented space, thereby imbuing it with authority. And that to me just sort of assumes that like the female body is inherently sexual because like immediately if you present yourself, like you lose all credibility The problem is like we can always push back against the sexualization of the female body, but like it is a reality that that happens. 
too. So it's like, do we acquiesce to like the way things are and accept that like this is the realm where we have authority or is there a way to like be more critical? I just don't think that it can be so neatly defined as empowering if you are like accepting the limitations of the system as in like when you don't show your body, you are empowered because your body is sexual and like you're not doing yourself any favors by like putting your image out there. Do you know what I'm saying? No, I totally do. Yeah. Like the idea that it's inherently a display for other people is an issue for me and my own relationship to my body too all the time. Oh, yeah. I don't want to feel like I have to negate my body in order to have authority. And I don't, I'm not saying that that's what Greer is saying we need to do, but sometimes it just feels like that in general. Yeah. Well, then the other thing that I don't think she touched on, which was interesting to me, was like this kind of common refrain that especially came up during the 2016 election about women's voices being like shrill and just like not Ugh, yeah like an audience doesn't like hearing a woman's voice and I was like I don't think she touched on that and I was kind of surprised because that's like almost separate from being embodied or disembodied that's you know another issue with patriarchal consumption of mm. women in media or in politics or wherever Chion talks about an invitation to the loss of the self to desire and fascination. That's sort of what's unleashed when you remove the body. And like, it sort of feels like a catch 22 for us here because it's like, okay, well, I'm desirable and fascinating if I show you my body, but then also it's like, quote, titillating if I don't show you. It's like, how about you just Just masturbate and be done with it? And also, it's not such a privilege to be a disembodied voice. Like, for example, when you were talking about that last phone call that that girl made to her family, like, somebody picked me up, and then you never hear from her again. Like, she was murdered. It it comes back to the, like, the true crime thorn, I guess, of this argument where, like, if women's bodies are inherently sexual, and then, therefore, to be disembodied is to have authority, which, like, is incredibly problematic, I agree. You're still, like, even if in the example, Karen and Georgia have authority by being disembodied. What does that mean for this murder victim that they're talking about? It's an important distinction to sort of tease out like the experience for the female host and then the experience for or of, I guess, the female, like the subjects that they're talking about. That's sort of what I think she's getting at with the whole Deridian mourning. We do resurrect them and we give them this power back by not just portraying them as like slabs of meat in a coroner's office or whatever because that's like visually the way that women are represented in media is so bodily that it's like it does empower them to have this back but also they got their bodies violated and taken away from them like that wasn't empowering when they were murdered that's a totally different disembodying with like women hosting they definitely i think attack it from angles that men wouldn't or wouldn't think to do but they address the tension but then they just kind of accept it i would say here's like the heart of what she's saying about my favorite murder i think she writes that they in that they are an oral in in that it's an oral medium they create a sonic space in which female victims as well as their own female voices become haunting specters which force listeners to imaginatively reconstruct scenes of female-directed violence while acknowledging the ethics of their complicity in the propagation and popularization of these narratives. 
do they acknowledge the ethics? I mean, we're, I guess we're doing this now, but when we're just listening together, we're not like, huh, what are the ethics of our complicity in the right. propagation and popularization of these narratives? Exactly. I think in the example... We're like, let's eat bagels together. There's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably some kind of like Venn diagram of Jewish female true crime fans in which there are many bagels. Oh, it's a circle. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> You're describing a circle. It's not such an easy space of like, safety for these victims just because women are talking about it as opposed to men. I even just said victims. Like we're still talking about them yeah. in relation to their killer. I told you last week there was the survivor story where I had to stop listening. Like I think if you truly reckoned with the ethics and with your own complicity while listening, like I don't think you'd listen. Greer cited an Atlantic article that pointed out that the murderinos. See, okay, hearing that word makes me visualize some sort of like fucked up Mario Kart character <laughs> or something, or like some weird Italian dish that is like, I don't know. Perfect. Just that word is weird. But the murderinos are fans of My Favorite Murder. And they made, some of them made these like online support groups. Well, they talk about people like going to shows by themselves, like women who have anxiety who mm-hmm. like true crime, who are like challenging themselves to do a thing and they'll go to the live shows alone and like make friends. Like, okay, like in a post-COVID world, if they're still touring, I would know that I could go, if I like, couldn't find anyone to go with me, I would know that I could go to that show alone and like be uncomfortable, but not be too like. How much do you think that that's related to the gender of the hosts? I mean, kind of a fair amount, honestly. I think not like it's, it's created, it's related more directly to just like the environment they've created and like it's it's women speaking they're super open about anxiety depression whatever they're at least mildly open about how like it's weird that we're doing this podcast Mm. like you know sporadically and so it I think it does create an environment of just openness but is it really the best use of our time right like in this current moment to be like finding respite in these like havens of like comfortable discussions about victimhood and like I don't know both of the hosts are white and I I do think that that's like something we haven't brought up but I think we should and like we're both white I don't know I just feel like it's it's a safety that is conditional and I don't know if it's like the most responsible thing to retreat into right now it's not especially like when you're creating not creating a world but like amplifying a world in which women are always victims or survivors typically mm-hmm. and never culpable like yeah that's that's like a slice of our world just because you know it's true crime it's not fabrication but like it's not right the larger picture we hope you enjoyed this episode of all alone with something to say We are almost painfully aware of the fact that we can only go so deep into a conversation in about 15 minutes, so we're more than happy to continue the conversation outside of the podcast. So if you've got something to say, and I need to figure out a non-confrontational tone for that, if you've got something to say, reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at theallalonepod or shoot us an email at theallalonepod at gmail.com.